This is a Radio Frimley Park podcast. Frimley Health NHS Foundation Trust covers patients from Berkshire, Hampshire, Surrey and South Buckinghamshire. Over its three main hospitals, Frimley Park in Frimley, Heatherwood in Ascot and Wexham Park near Slough, it handles nearly 900,000 outpatient appointments and treats over 240,000 people in their emergency departments each year. But it's not just the clinical staff, doctors, nurses, surgeons and consultants who work in these hospitals. There are plenty of support staff who often work behind the scenes to keep the hospital running. In this series, we'll be talking to some of those people about what they do and how they came to work inside the hospital. In this episode, we're going to look at patient experience. What is that? And who are the teams working to ensure it's delivered? There are so many areas in which patients interact with the hospital, and overseeing that for Frimley Park Hospital is Lisa Buckingham. Hi, my name's Lisa Buckingham. I'm Head of Patient Experience for Frimley Health. I'm relatively new to this role. I came into post as Head of Patient Experience in September last year. Um... Although patient experience is part of everyone's role who works within Frimley Health. I've been in the trust for a number of years um, and I'm a nurse by background. I've been nursing for 23 years. I predominantly have worked in critical care, but then moved into head of nursing roles um, where I've covered surgery, critical care, orthopaedics through my years of nursing, I've witnessed firsthand what it's like for patients when things go really well. Um, But sadly, I've also witnessed how it is for patients when their experience isn't as positive as they would have hoped. Um, This head of patient experience role provides that perfect platform for uh, leading teams and to be able to make changes that positively impact on our patients. I think the thing that I enjoy the most about my job is the teams of people that I work with. I work with people every day who work so, so hard to achieve great things for our patients. Um, They're often working at a time where there's huge pressures within the organisation, but they come to work with a smile on their face um, with the objective of doing the best they can for our patients. Um, We do receive uh, compliments from our patients as well as complaints and it's really seeing the improvements as a result of the feedback that we get that really makes this job worthwhile. We've talked about patient experience, your head of patient experience, but what does the term patient experience mean? So I think we, we learn a lot from our patients and the feedback that they give us. And we know what a good experience means to them, what good looks like, what matters to patients. And we know that a good patient experience means that the patient has felt listened to during their time with us, be that as an inpatient or an outpatient appointment. Um, and that if they raise a concern or they ask for something that they feel that we've heard them and that we have responded to their needs. I think that their care is safe, is really important, and that patients have confidence in the staff that are treating them. 
so that we have a workforce that's well-trained, knowledgeable um, and responsive to what it is that patients need at that time. Could you describe to us what a typical day in your role involves? What are you doing on a day-to-day basis? I'm mainly based on each of the main acute hospital sites. So I'm either based on the Wexham Park site or the Frimley Park site. Um, My time is split between the two main acute sites. I am generally found in one of the offices, but I'm also involved in if we do walkabouts of the clinical areas, um, I support those and go around and speak to patients and the staff to understand how we're doing with aspects of patient experience and how responsive we're being to the feedback from our patients. So you mentioned obviously your background is in nursing. What made you go into nursing to begin with? Why did you end up going down that route? So I knew very early on that I wanted to be a nurse and went straight from college to university to do my nurse training. And I think that's quite a fortunate position to be in, to know quite young that the career path that you want to go down. Um, I've worked in a number of organisations and also been fortunate enough to nurse abroad. I have always enjoyed um, being with patients, looking after them, supporting patients in their recovery and working with, with teams of staff. As you know, a patient's experience is very much as a result of a team, team of people looking after them, uh, not just one single person. This role really provides an opportunity to have an oversight of patient experience, the wealth of feedback that we get from patients, and to lead and support teams in delivering improvements to provide that excellent care that we strive for. Do you think that, I mean, you mentioned there that you've worked in different countries, you've obviously worked in different departments. Do you think that breadth of experience of the different areas that patients touch and different environments help in a role like this? I think it's really important to have clinical experience to go into a role like patient experience and to have worked across a number of areas, particularly at times where the NHS and the organisation is under a lot of pressure. Patients come into hospital being quite well informed at the moment of the pressures on the organisation. So winter pressures coming out of the COVID pandemic, um, the backlogs that we have, and we are trying really hard um, to work within those pressures. I think having that operational experience and working within those pressures firsthand really helps with working with the teams and supporting them in bringing their ideas to life of how we can improve things for our patients. That takes me nicely on to the question I had. With the pressures that everybody knows is on the NHS, how do you manage that with patients as part of their experience? Our patients watch the news and they read the newspapers and they are aware of the pressures within within the NHS currently. And we see with the feedback that we get from patients that they acknowledge the pressures and they are often grateful for the care that they've received. We do need to manage expectations. And I think the way to do that is that we need to be open and honest with our patients about what they can expect, um, timelines for receiving their treatment, but keeping them updated during that process of any changes um, and any support they might need in the interim. Where do you think the patient experience starts and ends? 
patient experience often starts well before they get to the front door of our hospitals. It starts from the moment that they enter the system, be that from referral to from their GP or that initial phone call um, to to make it to make an appointment. And the patient experience team are very much involved in supporting all of those teams, not just the teams that will be looking after those patients once they enter the hospital. So there are so many improvements going on throughout the organisation and a lot of the time these ideas don't come from the patient experience team. They are led by frontline teams and our role is supporting them in making those improvements. And the areas for improvement are often as a result of feedback from patients. We get feedback from patients through so many different sources now, um, from our national surveys to our more local surveys that we carry out, um, from compliments that patients give us to tell us what's working really well through to our complaints where things haven't gone so well. And we really use that feedback to drive improvement. Making sure that patients are well-informed and involved in decisions about their care has been something that we've been focusing on a lot. We've recently produced a place map um, for patients' tables in the hospital wards, which provides them with a lot of information and um, empowers them to become involved in the, in the decisions about their care and to provide feedback. Um, one of the other things we've been looking at is patients commented about access to food and drink outside of the meal times in the hospital. And we have got trolleys on the ward which support staff being able to access food and drink for patients outside of mealtimes. And we've got some really positive feedback about that. Uh, the other thing that's um, being developed further at the moment is the My Frimley Health app, which allows patients to um, have some choice around appointments um, and able to make appointments through the app rather than having to contact the uh, the appointment lines. Could you describe for us, the listeners, what a particular memorable moment from your role is? Something that really stands out as something that you felt like you really achieved something or something that was a real challenge that you overcame? One of the most memorable moments in my role was actually very early on when I came into post as head of patient experience. And we had been contacted by a patient who had previously had a very negative experience in our care. Uh, she was a lady with very complex health needs and she had an assistance dog. And on a previous visit, um, she had commented that arrangements hadn't been made to accommodate her dog being present. And this had a huge impact on her and how, self she, how safe she felt while she was with us. So once we heard that she'd been scheduled to come back into the hospital, we made arrangements for that period of care for the dog, her assistance dog, to be able to be in the hospital with her. And that involved working really closely with the teams that were going to be looking after her, really going the extra mile. But the outcome was fantastic. The patient's feedback was that she, it was the most positive experience she'd had in a hospital. Um, she felt safe. She felt well, well cared for. And the staff felt really positive about it and actually that if the situation arose again, that they'd feel confident in delivering the same service to another one of our patients. So it was a great learning experience for us and a brilliant outcome for the patient. So it, it's it's one of a number of 
um, examples I can use, but it's really about us delivering individualised care for patients and fully acknowledging what matters to them and what's important to them. We ask this question to everybody who's taken part. There's often a common misconception about what somebody does. So when you tell them what you do, what is it that they think you do? And therefore, what do you have to then tell them you do? Well, I think one of the things is that I'm a nurse and what people think nurses do, they think it's... um, It is bedside nursing. And what this role shows amongst others is that nursing can take you in different directions and there are so many different opportunities out there in nursing. I think the public are generally aware of the feedback that comes from patients and patients get asked to complete friends and family tests. There's the national survey We have volunteers that go around and survey patients while they're in the hospital. And when I speak to people about my role, I say that really my role is with my team pulling the feedback that we get together and looking at themes that comes out of that data and looking at how we can make changes to make things better for patients or capturing what we've done well celebrating that success and making sure that we share that good that good practice amongst our teams that's really important too you mentioned your team there what size sort of team is there and what do those teams or the different parts of those teams do so as head of patient experience there are several teams within the organization one of the teams is the volunteering service so we currently have nearly 900 volunteers working across Frimley Health which is absolutely incredible. And the roles that the volunteers carry out are vast, from giving patients drinks while they're waiting in the emergency department to driving buggies around the the hospitals. We've got volunteers who are supporting bringing the pets as therapy dogs into the hospitals. And we've had amazing feedback about those, um, not just from patients who've really appreciated that, um, but from our staff as well, from a staff wellbeing perspective, um, having the therapy dogs on the wards has added huge value. Um, so the volunteering team is one of the teams. The chaplaincy team is another team that comes within the patient experience team. And again, they carry out a huge role in the hospital with supporting our patients um, with their emotional well-being, um, their spiritual needs, um, and also supporting the staff. So they they do some fantastic work. We've also recently um, employed a armed forces covenant lead, identifying veterans and um, making sure that they are supported whilst under the care of Frimley Health and that they are not disadvantaged in any way. Um, and then I have the team that support the patient feedback side of the work, um, collecting the data um, and allowing us to use that data to make improvements. But we work with all the teams across the hospital, all of the directorates, all of the wards um, have a, a vital role to play in patient experience. And it's really about us just supporting them in that work We've also recently, we are recruiting patient experience champions from each of the clinical areas. 
So this can be a member of staff at any level who has put themselves forward to really champion patient experience within their clinical area. And we've had a really good response to that. And we'll be having regular meetings with them so that they can help drive some of the work that we do and um, be part of the improvements that we that we make. So if there's people listening who would want to give feedback, positive, negative, about their experience with Infimly Health, how would they go about doing that? So the first point of contact for patients, if they have any concerns or queries about their current care, we have the patient advice and liaison service. And the offices for those are in um, each of the acute sites. So they can go in person or they can contact them by phone. And the contact details for that are on the hospital website. Um, they're really the first contact for sorting out any problems in real time um, if it can't be dealt with by the department um, where you're being treated. We also have the complaints teams, which again, the contact details are um, on the trust website. But really what we'd be encouraging patients to do is to give their feedback at the time where possible, be it positive or negative feedback, so that we can try and deal with the concern at that time and make things right. It was great talking with Lisa, who was passionate about making sure everyone who visits hospital gets the best possible experience. As Lisa mentioned, there are different groups of staff that work to help people during their hospital stay, or even work with the members of staff. It's not just clinical staff talking with the patients, there are many non-clinical staff that they might meet during their visit. One of these is Kerry, who is the Armed Forces Covenant Lead. I'm meeting him in a small office within Frimley Park Hospital. Whilst it's tucked away in the hospital, he doesn't spend much time there. My name's Kerry Gospel and I'm the Armed Forces Covenant Lead for Frimley Health Foundation Trust, which sees me working across all of the three sites. I came here in the March of 2020 at the start of the COVID crisis uh, and originally I was working for the Trust Operations Centre during those early days and I did that role as their logistics support manager for the COVID uplift for about two and a half years. And then around six months prior to this job coming up, it, it, we were made aware that there was an aspiration to do it and we were going to start looking for somebody to fill that role. So I applied for it at that point and, and started the job in the August. Well, the role itself is fairly unique in that it, it needs somebody who's got a, a good understanding of how the healthcare system works, not necessarily the the true specifics and the detail of you know clinical or medical but more an understanding of how the trust runs but more importantly it needs to be somebody who's ideally served in the military for an extended period of time who understands the needs of veterans because they are one themselves and they engage with veterans on a regular basis so for me when I looked at the role I felt that my skill set coupled with the experience I'd gained over 30 years in the military were would probably lend itself particularly well to establishing it and getting it set up. Part of the role is obviously helping make people aware of the Armed Forces Covenant. Mm -hmm. For people who might not be familiar with what that is, could you explain that? The Armed Forces Covenant is a commitment by the nation to make sure that those who have served our country are not disadvantaged in any way. When we say disadvantaged, we want to obviously take care of our veterans and those who have served for us but the key message is that we don't want them to be disadvantaged and often the veterans by the nature of their previous employment the fact that they are quite transient they come with a unique set of problems sometimes both physically and mentally 
that we need to make sure that we address them because they're a fairly unique demographic. So this trust, along with numerous businesses and numerous NHS trusts in the UK, signed up to the Armed Forces Covenant, and that means that they will honour that commitment and they will make sure that they look after veterans in healthcare and ensure that they are not disadvantaged in any way. So when I look at the role itself, there are kind of four strands to making it work. The Armed Forces Covenant and upholding that for our patients is the number one priority and that's the first strand in terms of what I do. So could you explain about that? So how how would you interact with a patient? How would a patient come to find you or your team? We, we went across the electronic patient record earlier in the year, which has put us as a trust in a very commanding situation. An electronic patient record system, EPR, was recently introduced across Frimley Health, which digitised patients' records, allowing staff to be able to find patient information quickly and efficiently. The system is known as EPIC. EPIC itself is an American system. And because it's an American system, it, the Americans cater very well for their veterans. They identify veterans very early in healthcare and offer a number of financial packages which will be advantageous to their veteran community. So when a patient arrives in the trust, we're in the process now of getting everybody trained. So the ward clerks that have their first contact with them or the, the girls who run the reception desk at A&E, as they're processing the patient and they come through, one of the questions they'll ask along with, What's your name? Where do you live? Who is your next of kin? They will say, have you or any of your family served in the armed forces? And then on the electronic patient record under demographics, we're able to annotate that to say that they've been in the military. That then allows me to interrogate the system and produce a report. So on every morning that I come into work, I'm able to run a report and find out over the last 24 hours who was a veteran that has been brought into healthcare. Some of them will have come through A&E, just been looked after and sent out the door. Others will have been allocated a ward and may need further intervention. So at that point, I'm able to pop up and see the individual, speak to them, identify with them. You know, at, at initially it's only a point of contact. It's hi, you know, for example, if it was you, hi Ben, how are you? Is there anything I can do for you? And from that initial contact and that initial recognition of them being a veteran, a plethora of situations could evolve. What services do you offer to help them that might be different from a person who is not a veteran? There are a, an immense amount of charities that will focus on veteran wellbeing and healthcare. And there is evidence to suggest that veterans will have more problems, um, certainly orthopedically, because the job's quite a physical job, so they tend to have a lot more wear in their hips and in their knees. Additionally, they can also come with additional mental health issues and problems. What I'm able to do is if we recognise that somebody has got an injury which perhaps was caused as a result of their time in service, we can look to refer them through things like the Veteran Trauma Network, which may reduce the waiting time for them to have a scan or potentially an operation. On the non-physical side, if you look at mental health, we may get an individual who has come in here for a totally unrelated problem, but in consultation we realise that they have got some issues which are perhaps bothering them or potentially could bother them and what we're able to do is to to signpost them and offer them that that olive branch to get them into that op courage is the main mental health service provider that's a nhs initiative which anybody can access if they've got an individual on the ward perhaps he's only got a broken leg but in conversation divulges that his mental health is struggling a little bit 
we can refer them through OpCourage and we can offer them advice and assistance that way. Um, there are a real multitude, as you can imagine, you know, everything from the, you know, the Blind Veterans Association through Blesma, through the Royal British Legion. And each one of those charities normally offer a unique opportunity to help ex-servicemen. And often when they come into healthcare, they may come in with a broken leg, but it's that point of contact that makes us realize that yes, they have got a broken leg, but actually the other leg is a prosthetic limb that's maybe a little bit old and they now live in a house and they're struggling to get up the stairs and that perhaps their wife has passed away and their mental health has degraded as a result. So, you know, God forbid that that would be the situation for somebody to have all of those circumstances. But if you were gonna go into something of that depth, you can connect them through up courage with the mental health services, you can reach out to the British Legion, to SAFA, to any of the service charities and maybe arrange for them to have a stair lift installed or, you know, increase or reduce their waiting time, you know, maybe for an operation. So all of it is designed to enhance their patient experience as a veteran. So as part of the role, you're not only looking out for patients who join the healthcare system, you're looking out after staff who potentially are veterans themselves. Yeah, of course. So the, the, the job itself, I kind of... The, it, it's a very new role and the Veterans Covenant Healthcare Alliance that have established this along with Chester University that are doing the study are keen to employ people up and down the country. Not every post has been filled. So everybody is working on a relatively new template and working out what their scheme of manoeuvre is going to be. Patients are absolutely imperative, but we have to remember that certainly here in Surrey, we've got quite a large percentage of veteran staff we, we sit next to Sandhurst, Oldershot, quite a large military footprint, but those that are serving in the military in these areas aren't necessarily from here. You often find that the military will come from all across the UK, but predominantly they are in the south of England. So as a result of them doing service here, maybe meeting people locally, having children here who then go to local schools, a lot of servicemen that aren't from Surrey, Hans, Berkshire end up settling in this area. And those people and their partners, their wives, their husbands, their children end up taking jobs within healthcare. So apart from looking after the patients, we also try and look after the staff. Because again, we have a large veteran community that work on our staff. And a lot of them will struggle with the transition from the military into the civilian workplace. Um, many of them make the transition very easily. Some will struggle with that loss of camaraderie, that loss of structure, that lack of discipline. So I'm able to kind of bring those individuals together so that there is, you know, like anything, it's just bringing together like-minded individuals that have got common interest and shared experiences. And, and you know, that undoubtedly improves their well-being, mental health, everything they're in. Outside of taking care of the patients and the staff that we physically got within Frimley Health Foundation Trust, there is this need to reach out. We reach out for two reasons. One is... We're very keen to encourage people into a career in healthcare. There are many people in um, the civilian community or the wider community that are unaware. They, they assume that a hospital is just where doctors and nurses work and they don't understand the plethora of supporting roles that we have within this organisation. A lot of those that have served in the military have got a very good skill set from their time in the military and a lot of those are transferable skills that we can utilise here in logistics, in project management, in operational management. So we're constantly trying to encourage those guys in. So by me going to things like the community garrison health fairs, going to career transition partnerships, to job fairs, to the VCHA conferences, 
I'm able to promote the trust, highlight what it is we do, explain that we are a veteran aware organization and that we've signed up to the Armed Forces Covenant. We're currently a silver level employee recognition scheme award holder and we're working towards our gold. And what that means is that those that have perhaps left the services and continued to work as a reserveist, um, you know, the sort of territorial side of the army as it was known, if they come and work for this trust, we will give them additional benefits. So there is additional paid time off to allow them to go and do their military duties. Wider community-wise, again, this evening, I'm talking to the Parachute Regiment Association. They'll have 30 or 40 of their members there. And it's nice to be able to educate people at that level as to what we do for our patients, what we do for our staff, and what we can do for people who are considering coming to volunteer or to work within healthcare. But more importantly, to make them aware of what we don't do because as I said at the start of the interview, we're not there to provide a specialist service for veterans. We're there to make sure that they have the same healthcare journey as every other patient and they're not disadvantaged in any way. Sometimes you find that it, it reveals more information when they're dealing with one of their own than perhaps they would be prepared to divulge you know, to one of the medical staff here. Um, you mentioned at the start of our discussion that Prior to this role, you were working with the COVID uplift. I wondered mm. if you could just talk a bit about that, because obviously that was a big moment in healthcare where yeah. everybody was called to action and people like yourself obviously came in and did some, did work that potentially has never been done before and new roles that haven't been done before. Yeah, I mean, it, do you know what? It was a really crazy time, that, because I don't think, I don't think anybody, you, you know, you can plan for any eventuality and, and the trust had done that. But once the, re, you know, the, the, there is a saying that, you know, plans only survive first contact with the enemy and you know i think covid was like that i came in with three of the three other individuals at the start of the covid crisis and was able to almost because i didn't have a specific role here a lot of the people within the trust were doing specific roles and then those roles changed quite significantly as a result of covid so bringing in this extra layer in the trust operations center was uh, an, an absolute blessing in terms of getting us through that crisis we were able to come in look at it almost from like a you know with a military perspective and say okay what's the enemy what have we got in terms of you know home or friendly forces and you know how are we going to attack this situation and, and provide a little bit of experience and guidance the military predominantly go and create calm where chaos ensues and at that point that first few months first few years a lot of people's lives have been turned upside down and it was i think it was very useful to have somebody come in who was fairly neutral who could look at it with a bit more of a, a balanced view and and just offer that assistance as, you know, not just I, but there were a multitude of people that came in on the volunteer side um, and on the ops and planning side, you know, to, to make that an easier ride for all concerned. What do you think for you personally, what do you love doing the most every day? I absolutely, I would love to log on to the system and type into that veteran report, how many veterans have we got in the trust today? And it come up and say nothing. And I could just, you know, put my coat on and go home. But that never happens. You know, there's somebody on there every day and you don't know who that individual is. You know, you see, you see names and you see ages and you see wards. And it's not until you get there that you realise that every day is going to be completely different. You know, everyone's going to have a little different story. So making sure that their journey while they are here is the best it can possibly be. And if we can turn up and say, you know, hi, how are you doing? And that makes a difference, then that's amazing. If we turn up and the patient needs to go home and needs a specialist bed and a stair lift installing 
and we're able to reach out to the charities and arrange for that to happen, then that's going to be another great day at the office. With that sort of, you know, you've obviously had a shared experience in that you've both served in that, that sort of military world, in that armed forces world. Um, are there multiple people in your team who are doing this or is it you yourself doing it's, all it, it's just me yeah i'm absolutely a one-man band um i am very well supported by you know certainly you know i i sit with impatient experience so i've got you know good people around me who have got a similar vein you know we work alongside the volunteer force with mike stone and his team uh, and the patient experience so undoubtedly the experience that i'm offering to veterans and the clarification that i can give them regarding their health care journey will prevent them from having an unpleasant experience uh, which is the last thing that we want for any of our patients but i can address those needs uniquely whilst i'm working independently i'm very well supported by the medical clinical and the supporting staff that are here but it's the service charities and my colleagues elsewhere so because the armed forces covenant lead is a relatively new role all of us are all of us are kind of 80% doing the same thing, but every now and then somebody will do something different. And the beauty is that there's just this one big happy family of veteran covenant leads. Nobody's trying to get one up on anybody else. So when information comes in, when good ideas come in, it's all shared knowledge. Everybody who's producing paperwork and documents is happy to share that information because the document will be transferable. It will just be a case of changing the headed paper at the top and the name of the trust and making it specific for us here is the key thing there's always somebody on the end of a phone servicemen will get posted from a to b to c because that's the nature of the job so i'm able to reach out to my colleagues in southampton and in, and in berkshire and refer people in or out accordingly so whilst i sit alone here in the bigger scheme of things in terms of taking care of veterans uk per se um yeah there's a there's a really good network out there could you describe me a memorable moment from having done this role? What sort of stands out to you as sort of either a highlight or a really challenging thing that's happened to you whilst doing this role? We've seen a number of people come in who have, I've dealt with people who've had serious mental health issues, who we've been able to refer into the mental health services, which hopefully has given them the opportunity to um, get the help that they need. I've been with individuals in their last few hours, which I'm sure would have been comforting to both the individual and their family and dealt with their families afterwards. And I've seen people come in for what they perceived was going to be routine treatment. And perhaps that's escalated to the point where they've, you know, gone away from here having to face a, a life-changing operation or injury which is a challenge and I think if you're in that situation and without going into any details but if you come in here for one medical condition and find that you're leaving maybe without one of your limbs then that's going to be you know mentally and physically quite a challenge for you so to know that you've got the backing of numerous service charities that are going to be there for you to support you mentally to support you physically to give you that additional level of rehabilitation to potentially assist if you need anything changing within your property all of those issues which normally somebody has to face when a life-changing injury or illness comes about you're making slightly easier by being able to signpost people into the right organizations and and to take on some of that 
administrative responsibility to get them what they need. You know, that might be, we had a patient recently that had identified that as a result of her husband remaining at home, they would need to get a new bed. Um, the new bed was in the region of about £5,000. They accepted that, you know, that would be something they would have to take on if they wanted to enhance his quality of life outside of the hospital. Service charities involved, a um, couple of local charities involved, that £5,000 bed became a £2,000 bed is what they would physically pay. The rest was picked up by the charities. So, you know, again, that, that additional money could be used for other improvements that need to can be carried out in the house or indeed just so that they're not financially disadvantaged. So, so they're the good news stories as they come about. Uh, we've got another 18 months at least of me being in this role it's been funded for two years and we just want to really get that growing and developing to the stage where everybody throughout this trust whenever somebody comes in asks that question are you a veteran have you served and then starts to over a process of education that we're going to carry out next year just we give our nursing staff a little bit more education on the specific needs of those that have served in the military so they've got a better understanding. Because the one thing that we haven't talked about is that Chester University are doing an extended study into veterans in healthcare. So they're trying to identify when veterans come through the healthcare system, what their medical um, or clinical, uh, sorry, what, what their condition is and if a trend is developing. And, and as we see that progress over the years, hopefully that will inform the process so that we can get better funding or care for people who may have a specific trend in a you know in, in an area as a result of their previous history so you know if we we know that servicemen have a larger percentage of mental health issues we know that they have a larger percentage of um, orthopedic issues knees and hips we can try and get some additional funding into that to try and make a difference to them so that again they're not being disadvantaged compared to their civilian counterpart. Kerry is helping to bring an understanding to staff about the needs of veterans and help patients who are veterans to get signposted to the right help. I'm heading next to the centre of Frimley Park Hospital where the chaplaincy can be found. It is an open, bright chapel area with a multi-faith space. I'm talking to Jennifer and Nigel in their office next door to find out what it is they offer the patient experience. Hi, my name is Jennifer Sistig and my role is as lead for chaplaincy across the whole of Frimley Health. I've been working at Frimley Health for the last 10 years as of this month, but not always in this role. So I began as a bank chaplain and then I was a one day a week chaplain and then that crept up. And then by 2014, I ended up being the lead chaplain towards the end. And the role has changed since this time last year to be a cross-site role. So before working for Frimley Health, what were you doing in the, the wider world? In the wider world, initially I was a biomedical scientist uh, back in South Africa, clinical pathology worker. Um, and then when I was discerned for ministry, I then began training in theology. At the same time, I kept up my biomedical science as a sort of a student job, so to speak. Um, and so then after discernment, I took on a role, what you'd call a vicar here in England after two different parishes that I served um, as a family, we decided to move to the UK. And then because our children were little and my husband uh, hadn't yet been fully qualified, he's also in the ministry, uh, we agreed that he'd look for a position and I'd settle the children in. And then I ended up working um, as a temporary teacher, a supply teacher for religious studies, 
did that a little bit at Farnborough Hill up the road and then ended up working part time as a school chaplain. Um, and then I saw an SOS email from the then lead chaplain here to say, we really need help. Is there someone who might be able to feel comfortable in a hospital and doing this particular type of ministry? So I came and met with Judy and then that's how it happened. What do you find people think you do versus what you actually do? This is a very very good topic for discussion and I'm glad I've got Nigel next to me. So if I were to say someone I work as a chaplain um, in a hospital, for the most part, most people I meet wouldn't know what that meant. Um, and earlier today, Nigel was speaking about how there's so many different types of chaplaincy role and yet such a poor understanding generally within the population about what a chaplain does. In today's society, there are a huge number of opportunities for people to work as chaplains from the traditional roles of the armed forces and uh, hospitals, prisons, um, to nowadays to doctor surgeries and skate parks, uh, bus stations, um, council offices, all sorts of different places. The role of the chaplain has in some ways changed. In the hospital, it tends to be very specifically about uh, patients um, and their particular um, situation when it comes to health. And obviously, we deal with a lot of patients who are under palliative care and, and who are dying as well. But equally, we're very much here for staff and for relatives. So in fact, everybody who walks through the front door. And we're here for people of every faith and none. And when you say chaplain, people then will say, oh, mean like a vicar? I like, no, that's a very different role. Oh, and the assumption always is that it's a religious role. And it's not, it's pastoral first, pastoral spiritual. I think the most fundamental thing about chaplaincy is having the ability to walk with people through a difficult situation and having time to listen. Uh, good listening is a rare commodity in a busy world. And we all understand clearly when someone's paying us attention or when they're too busy looking at their phone or their watch or something or other, um, and the opportunity to come alongside somebody and really commit to listening to them and to their situation and what their concerns and their needs are, uh, for all of us, I think, is something that's valuable. Um, and uh, it's a, a really valuable way for somebody to articulate the problems and the issues that they're trying to deal with. And I, I see us very much as a as a listening service, actually, very often that's that's the key to uh, then creating a deeper relationship where we can start to do some practical things as well. If you go into the chapel itself, it's very similar to what you would expect from sort of a Church of England style setup, but it is a multi-faith area and a multi-faith role. Could you explain how that all comes together? It is a multi-faith role, you're right, sort of all faiths, beliefs, people who don't particularly hold any. Um, the chapel here at Frimley Park has traditionally been in this style since the hospital was built. The advantage of having it ring-fenced is that it's the one and only quiet space in the hospital. And again, traditionally, it's used by everyone who's looking for an oasis of calm. 
and, and people of all, all faiths and beliefs. As our, our staff population has changed and our general population has changed, we've now added on to the footprint of the chapel uh, a multi-faith room that has essentially become a Muslim prayer room. And we're really delighted, again, because of increased um, usage, to have had agreement from Capital Development to install a bespoke Muslim prayer room um, in what was one of our courtyards. It's helpful to have a dedicated Muslim prayer room because of the practicalities around prayer for our Muslim brothers and sisters, including the necessity to have ritual washing or wudu beforehand. So you need ablution facilities adjacent to the prayer space and you need enough floor space for people to kneel. Um, so there's a lot of gesture involved as well as recitation out loud and a separation of male and female. So that's always what makes a shared space a challenge. Um, and so we're really pleased that we're able to do that here. We've never had anyone come into the chapel and say it's too overtly Christian, I can't spend time here. Um, and also being a wider trust now, it's been good to be in discussion with the chaplains that have been based at Wexham Park to see how that multi-faith room has evolved and, and how it's used. And the most interesting thing that was said to me recently was a consultant that I bumped into at Heatherwood. So Heatherwood Hospital is, has got a really beautiful, quite small uh, prayer and reflection room. And I went in just to double check the layout because we tried to make it welcoming for everyone. Uh, and he was praying and after he finished praying um he walked past and he said it's so wonderfully quiet and calm in here Wexham park is so chaotic <laughs> so it's always interesting to try and find a, uh, and create a space that's suitable for everyone so we've talked a, a few of the aspects of what your role involves but what would be a typical day if you can describe such a thing as a typical day oh a typical day in the life of a hospital chaplain <laughs> Unpredictable, varied, um, eclectic. So a typical days, our sort of office hours are 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. and then one of us will be on call outside of those hours. We'll come in first thing and, and pick up messages, make sure that we've um, received any referrals or anything that needs to be done. We also have a, a wonderful volunteer cohort, so we need to be in place in order to welcome them and um, signpost them to patients that really do need to be seen on the on the day. We'll check in with each other as a staff team. We'll uh, keep an eye on our spaces to make sure that they're neat and tidy and welcoming. Um, and then we tackle our email inbox. And once we've done that, we'll try and visit some patients. <laughs> yes, I think the other aspect of that is uh, Jennifer's already touched on that we uh, are on duty effectively 24-7, 365 days a year. So there's always a chaplain on duty. And um, a lot of the calls that we get are for um, patients who are dying or have just died. Um, so that takes precedence over everything else during the day. And if we get one of those calls, then by and large, we drop everything and deal with that particular situation. And that could be anywhere in the hospital, from ICU to the general wards, to maternity, to A&E, resus, literally anywhere. Um, so as chaplains, we do cover the entire footprint of the hospital and never know where we're going next, really. 
So how do patients, staff reach out to you to get in touch? Because obviously the patient um, intake is constantly rotating. Is there an easy way for someone to reach out if they want some chaplaincy support? It's, Switchboard have a list of the duty chaplain for every day uh, with his own specific telephone number. So Switchboard will get in touch with the chaplain, either direct into the office or on his mobile. And uh, if he's at home at night, you know, he'll come into the hospital as quickly as he's able to. The other really helpful way is by being visible on the wards. And you'll find that uh, if you go to visit a particular patient, someone else will catch your eye. It'd be lovely if you could come and have a word or ward staff will see you and say, oh, actually, while you're here, I think so-and-so would appreciate a visit. Can you describe a particular event, a memorable moment from your work here? Uh, There's so many. Let's think. Um, One that's not as recent but was really beautiful to be a part of was... um, a woman who was a great-grandmother and was hoping to be at her great-granddaughter's baptism, a christening, but she had taken ill and was terminally ill and was worried that she wouldn't be around for that. So it was one of our chaplains, Lizzie, at the time, who then uh, started working with her and her family to try and find a way to create uh, not so much an event but um, a gathering of all four generations together to give thanks for that particular child here in the hospital. So managed to make that happen. We've got a lovely photo of her here in the chapel in her hospital bed, but with the rest of the family around. Moments like those are really special um, and incredibly fulfilling. Often you're talking to patients who have had life-changing news and they want to seek some sort of support from you. But Mm. as you as an individual, how do you deal with that sort of constant dealing with quite difficult moments for people? So as individuals who are regularly hearing um, from people who are going through some form of distress or uh, having difficult conversations, those of us who work in this way regularly, self-care is really important. So there there are a number of different ways to cope with the things that we hear and the effect that it has on us as individuals. The first one, for most of us who are chaplains, we are people of faith. So we'd fall back on our sort of spiritual practices to help us with that. We also have a sort of formal pastoral supervision um, with the qualified pastoral supervisor on a regular basis, who's also available to help us um, if we have a particularly difficult scenario that we want to talk through and it's a while until we meet with him. Um, We support one another as a team. So the advantage of having another person working alongside you is you can come back into the office and breathe and say, well, that was tough and and talk it through. Um, And then the other forms of support are within our volunteer base who pray for us regularly, again, as as people of faith. And then outside of work, um, some of us have spiritual directors, mentors, um, friends who understand the role. Uh, that we can offload on. It's really not a religious role, um, although chaplaincy itself has been born out of churches initially in, in this country. And especially now, as fewer people, as we know from the census, identify as Christian, fewer people that we encounter in the hospital have a Christian faith. So our starting point is always just on the human level. 
And once we get to know someone, we then find out what their frame of reference is and what they find meaningful and important. And I think the most uh, significant way in which we do that is when we're supporting people who've been through an early pregnancy loss um, and work with them to create a funeral service that's meaningful for them, which nowadays, for the most part, is not a religious ceremony. It's very interesting to find poetry, music, symbolism that enables people to transition through a difficult process when you don't have a shared uh, common narrative. Um, so it's been a learning learning process over these past 10 years, um, but really interesting. I would say one of the interesting things about society today is that we do everything we can to avoid the D word, that is death. And nobody wants to talk about it. Whereas years ago, it was an, um, a subject that everybody was able to talk about, free to talk about. And that has a big impact on family and patients uh, within the hospital because there's no preparation for something which is inevitable for all of us. We are all going to die at some point. And uh, that has implications both for staff um, and for patients and certainly for relatives. Uh, and it's something that um, in many different things that I do, I do try and talk about it and encourage people to talk within families uh, and communities because uh, by talking about these things openly uh, with friends and family, uh, then when the, the time comes and somebody is actually facing death, the decisions are much easier to take. And the challenges that medical staff face between quality of life and prolonging life and all those other things are very, very difficult. And I think uh, as, a, as a community, as a country, you know, it's something we all need to try and deal with in our own lives and situations. In addition to that, uh, the other thing that sometimes comes up these days is uh, at my funeral, I don't want people to be wearing black and feeling sad. I want it to be colourful and a celebration of my life. And I, I really do understand where that comes from. However, we've lost a sense of lamentation and the awareness of why grief is important. So yes, of course, celebrate the person's life, but allow yourself to grieve. That's an important part of the healing process. And I, I think we we do encourage people to recognize that. And we're really delighted that we're going to have our first in-person memorial service again for those families of those who've died at Frimley Park. First time since the pandemic began. So it enables people to express their emotion um, because it's hard when we lose someone we love. Do you still run services? on a regular basis at all in the chapel? Good question. There, there are very few acute hospitals that still run services or have corporate worship, aside from corporate worship on a Friday, Friday prayers for our Muslim brothers and sisters. We meet for a prayer meeting on a Tuesday afternoon um, here and at Wexham Park on a Wednesday afternoon at Heatherwood Hospital. On a Sunday morning, Frimley Park still gathers at 9 a.m. in the chapel for a service, either a communion, a Eucharist service or a service of prayer. 
But if uh, fewer and fewer people attend, uh, if we do have someone attend, quite often it's actually uh, a member of the family rather than the patient. Because if you're still in here on a Sunday morning, you're probably not that well, not well enough to come down to the chapel and spend an hour on your own. And certainly in terms of staffing levels, it's not possible anymore for a healthcare assistant to take an hour out of the morning to be with one patient in order to enable them to to worship. So things have changed significantly. So no, not often. But the the memorial services are multi-faith and we have them about four. At one point we had them seven times in the year. But um, we're slowly building up to that again. Jennifer, the lead chaplain for Frimley Health, and Nigel, a chaplain for Frimley Park, talked about the emotional support on offer when a patient or member of staff needs it. If you want to find out more about the chaplaincy services, just search online for Frimley Health Chaplaincy for more details. That brings us to the end of this episode, which has only covered a small section of the hundreds of staff working within the hospital to deliver a better patient experience. Join me next time when we'll be speaking to more staff and volunteers as they work inside the hospital.